You are listening to a sermon series from Open Door Fellowship Church. Well, you guys, we are in for a treat this next three weeks. Um, Ed Underwood is here. And if you don't know Ed, yeah, amen. Man, he's been here a number of times before and just spoke to us with fresh language and the same truths that we cherish from uh, God's word and from his heart. And uh, he has, for 20-some years, been the pastor at the church of the historic Church of the Open Door, and now has transitioned, let that leadership transition, and he heads up a ministry called Recentered. And he speaks all over the country and speaks a lot of these truths that come out of true face and uh, are just so proud to watch what God's doing in him. And he's written many books. Um, in fact, this one, he's, uh, it's called when, Where's, when God Breaks Your Heart. And it's been probably your bestseller, your, your biggest seller. And now they've republished it and he let me do an endorsement. So uh, I wrote, only a handful in this generation can represent our experience of grief, pain, loss, and the depression it can bring while still mooring us in an unshakable trust and hope of God's love and grace. Uh, this book will ruin you in the very best sense of the concept. My friend Ed is speaking from deep theological understanding and a choice to stay in the arena through devastating experience. Clear your schedule, sit down in a comfortable chair, and devour this book. Um, he brought 10 copies today, um, so I'm sure there'll be lots of extras. 10, you're not, you're not gonna change the world bringing 10 books, okay? Um, so look, for, for Christmas, he's gonna bring a lot, lot more next week. Uh, do it, G give these as a Christmas present. The book is that, that good. I think what I want to say about you, Ed, um, is only this. I, I have never listened to many preachers because I didn't know if I could trust them. It's as Bruce McNichol says, um, the more crafted a message is, the less likely it is to be trusted. And I, what I want to say is we trust you. Your, your authenticity allows us to hear truth. And I'm just so proud that you would come out from L.A. for these next weeks and just bring us into Christmas. Thank you, Ed. Come on up. Yeah. Well, good morning. So great to be back with you. I, I love preaching here. Such a warm, it's, it's so much fun to preach at a place that has heard grace before. And I don't have to stand up here and defend it and uh, you know, do handsprings. I can just teach it, and this is especially true. I just finished two weeks at a, at a Bible college and um, preaching on the grace of God, teaching the doctrine of salvation in the high trust culture. And uh, most of the time, the audience was And uh, isn't it, doesn't it make you sad that uh, so many Christians have been taught to mistrust grace? It really saddens me, but not here, so I just get to go all out. It's going to be important for you to turn to Psalm 77. 
Psalm 77 is our text. We're talking about surviving Christmas. (laughs) Um, And I've always been intrigued by this psalm because it is so unique. When the psalmists were writing their psalms, they had a form that they went by. And there are different types of psalms. This one is called the Individual Psalm of Lament. It is an individual psalm of lament, and there are many of them in the psalms. But this particular psalm is so different. It has always intrigued me. This is an individual psalm of lament that does not have a petition. Neither does it have a vow of praise. The typical psalm of lament would go, you know, we're real familiar with these from David. Okay, God, life sucks. I want you to do this, and I praise you because you're good. This one is different. It does not have a petition. As we read through the psalm, you're going to notice he doesn't ask God for anything. He doesn't vow to praise God for anything. What he does is he provides you and me one of the most critical insights for the tough times of life. And there can be times when Christmas is just tough. So I want to pray. If you don't mind, I want to pray for us. And I want to pray for a very, young, a very important young man in my life. I love very much the man that I handed off to at Church of the Open Door who is preaching now at that uh, church. So let's pray. Father, I, I pray for David Anderson. I pray, Father, that he could preach your word from the upper room with courage and with honesty and I pray that his words would be warmly received now Father I pray for your Holy Spirit your son told us that he would teach us and comfort us so Father please would your spirit teach us and comfort us now in Jesus name Amen. This is a picture of Judy and me I'm doing everything right so you're going to just going to have to follow me everybody no that's the wrong one you got to start at the beginning that's not Judy and me that's Donald and, and so you got you got to go to the first one if you don't mind there we are That's Judy and me in 1977. We are in Ansbach, Germany. I'm a young lieutenant in the United States Army. And that's our two oldest children. Bobby is in my lap, who's now lieutenant colonel. (laughs) And Amy, who teaches now in Salem, is leaning on her mom. And this is a very happy time for us. We're we're with our Bible study group in, in Ansbach, Germany. Officers Christian Fellowship. It was, we'd been married, it was our seventh Christmas as a couple and as a family, and it was the very best Christmas we had ever had. We had so much fun. 
on the two or three days that I got off from the battalion. We walked around Ansbach in that German town on those co cobblestone streets. It's on the Romantische Straße. We bought a Christmas tree from this German guy who knew no English, and I knew very little <coughs> German. And I'd, he'd show me a tree, and he'd say, Sehr gut. <coughs> and I would say, Wie viel kostet ist? And he'd tell me, and it was too much, and I'd say, no good. Uh, finally, we bought a little tree. We took it home. We decorated it all on our own. We bought the children parents uh, presents. We, somebody might have needed to buy them parents, but not that time. <laughs> we bought them presents, and we took a little side trip. It was only 20 kilometers away to a place called Rotenburg. Some of you uh, were there this summer. It's a beautiful little um, medieval town, and when they, they really do it up, we went to the Kris Kringle Mart and bought a lot of ornaments, and our grandkids still, they want to look at every little ornament and hear the story about it. It was a tremendous, tremendous time. We had Christmas dinner with Christian friends from our OCF group, people that have become lifelong friends. We enjoyed it. We loved it. It was so freeing. Most of all, it was our first Christmas away from my family. Our first six Decembers as a couple, the family had placed us right in the middle of what I could only call what many young couples experience, the in-law Christmas wars. Parents and grandparents, you want to give your kids a present for Christmas? Give them the present we give our kids. We look them in the eye and we say, this Christmas season, we come last. Do whatever you need to do. Takes a lot of pressure on them. My parents, in these Christmas wars, I hate to admit, were the ones lobbing most of the grenades. Christmas was not the most wonderful time of the year. It was, for me, a time of confusion, a time of bitterness, a time of anger, and a time of despair. Every move was monitored. Every minute was recorded. However much time we spent with Judy's family, however much time we spent with friends, was for some reason wrong and a reason for shame in our lives. I remember telling Judy during the middle of that first Christmas, how did I come from these people? <laughs> and then we had kids and grandkids can energize everything even more and our children suddenly became like pawns on the chessboard of who do you love most? I had grown to the point that I hated Christmas. I hated it. I didn't want to see it come. If I could just go to New Year's Day, I would have been fine. It all started in Thanksgiving. I remember our first little Thanksgiving uh, as a couple. I was at UC Santa Barbara, and we had our little apartment there. And we were so naive, didn't know anything about in-law dynamics. And I said, hey, I got an idea. Let's invite your family and our family over for Thanksgiving dinner. 
yeah, that'll be good. We haven't seen them. They can all drive to Santa Barbara. We'll have so much fun. Here's what I didn't know, that uh, turkey stuffing comes with sage and without sage. Now, that I didn't know. I also didn't know that my mother made turkey stuffing with sage. Judy's mother made turkey, turkey stuffing without sage. And every time, Judy's family would say, which has the sage and which doesn't? And someone would point them to my mother-in-law's uh, dressing. They would say, oh, that's the one I want. I didn't know that those were capital crimes. And that for months, I would pay the price in a thousand conversations. Christmas seems to take whatever is wrong in our life, whatever loss we've experienced, and I know many of you have, death of loved ones, strained family relationships, whatever wounds are in our hearts, whatever mistakes we've made, whatever circumstances we didn't wish we had to face, whatever Relatives we wish we didn't have. And it, it's like it puts it into a hy hypodermic needle and just thrusts it into our heart and pushes it down and we feel it more intensely than ever before. And that may really be the way some of you are wondering or feeling today. And I realize it's true. My parents loved me with all their abilities. They also wounded me deeply. And Christmas only made me acutely aware of the wounds and, and what I didn't have. It brought a lot of shame to me because of my unchristian ways of responding. I just had this horrible, horrible memory. Our first year at Dallas Seminary, uh, my parents... Uh, said, we want to bring you home for Christmas, and we had zero money. And the kids, these same two children, they're a little older then, they were so excited to go see Grandma and Grandpa for Christmas. So we got in our little old Chevy, and we left Dallas, Texas. We drove all the way in one. We didn't have t money to stay in hotels. So we drove all the way in one day, and uh, we got here. What we didn't know was that when my parents sent me the money to bring us to Dallas, that in their minds we had signed a contract that we would only be with them. And every time we went to see Judy's family and every time we would spend time with our friends, we would, there was just hell to pay. And finally one night, it was two days before we were going to go home, uh, they started in and, and just, I can't believe that you think, and it just triggered me a whole lifetime of this stuff. And man, I just exploded. By the way, those of you whose defense mechanism is passive aggressiveness, I so wish I was you because you look so spiritual when, <laughs> when, you're, when you're sinful. You look and you shake your head while you're thinking, I'm going to screw this person over. 
But for me, it's anger. And man, my sin is just right out. And man, I went berserk. And I remember going back in the bedroom and packing our bags. And I told Judy, I said, we're flying home tonight. And she looked at me and she said, honey, we drove here. She was in tears, I was in tears, the kids were in tears. And that night I was so troubled, I could not speak. A lot like this guy, Asaph. Asaph, Psalm 77 is a place to turn when Christmas feels like a prison. Let me give you an overview of this. Asaph is so troubled he cannot speak. There are three movements to this psalm. There's the desperate state, and then there's this key insight, and then the restoration meditations. Uh, Asaph says, I'm wondering if God has abandoned me in his grace. I wonder if he's still merciful. And the more I discover about Asaph, the more I like him. By any measure, Asaph was a spiritually mature man. Here's his resume. He was the chief singer in the, ta in the tabernacle. 1 Chronicles 15, 17. David appointed him as chief minister. He was David's personal worship leader. 1 Chronicles 16, 4 and 5. Four of his sons served in the temple. We find in Second Chronicles, and this is what really amazes me about what a powerful follower of God he was, that decades later, his descendants formed a guild that was prominent in the great revivals of Israel. We find in the book of Nehemiah, 128 of his descendants returned to the promised land from Babylonia and led the spiritual awakening under Ezra. So by any measure, he was a spiritually minded, mature follower of the God of the Bible. Because this is important. When I get to heaven, there will be two guys that I hug. First, John the Baptist. Well, okay, Jesus, you first. But first is John the Baptist, because John the Baptist, behold the Son of God, takes away the sin of the world. Here's the Father saying, this is my beloved Son. Oh man, John the Baptist, you are the forerunner. And then a little bit later when life is tough, he sends a messenger and he says, are you sure you're the one? I just want to hug John and say, thank you for your doubts. And Asaph, for writing this psalm, it dispels the idea that those of us who can get melancholy and be sorrowful are somehow spiritually immature or inferior. Let's look at first his desperate state. The desperate state. Psalm 77 verses 1 through 9. Psalm 77 verses 1 through 9. Let's, if you get it up there, we'll... I'll, give you the outline and then I'll read it. Psalm 77 verses 1 through 9. Uh, desperate prayers brought no comfort, only feelings of hopelessness. 
sleepless nights haunted by happier memories, and he fears God's abandonment. What's important here to understand is in our English Bible, when it says Psalm 77, uh, the consoling memory of God's redemptive works I have in the New King James, that's not inspired, but where it says to the chief musician, to Jeduthun, Jeduthun, the, the, a psalm of Asaph, that's inspired. That's the first verse in the Hebrew text. So we know who wrote it. I cried to God with my voice. To God with my voice. Notice he's using all the things that have worked in his life before. He's prayed. And he gave ear to me. In the day of my trouble, I sought the Lord. My hand was stretched out in the night without ceasing. The Hebrew imagery there is, I stretched my hand out to the point that they became numb. Both hands became numb. This is the desperation of his prayer. My soul refused to be comforted. Notice he's praying to God. He's praying desperately, but he's not blaming a thing on God. My soul I can't sleep at night. I am awake. I, I can't find comfort. I remembered God and was troubled. I remembered God. What an honest person. I'm thinking about God, and instead of it comforting me with what I'm going through right now, it troubles me. Why? So I complained, and my spirit was overwhelmed. These are those nights we can't sleep. Something so bad has happened. We're praying to God, and it doesn't seem like anything is happening. Then the Hebrew term, Selah. But it was a lot like in the Hebrew that the ancient Near East, the Hebrew culture is very demonstrative. So when they did, when they would sing these songs, Selah meant the people would go, would answer. Like, oh, no. Something like, I, I love preaching in African-American church, churches because they do a lot of Selahs. You'll be preaching and, and somebody in the back will go, there you go. And I'm thinking, hey, good, somebody's listening. You hold my eye, you, God, hold my eyelids open. And the word hold my eyelids open, it isn't like a tender thing. It's, it, it's a rough, uh, don't close your eyes. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I have considered the days of old, the years of ancient times. I call to remembrance my song in the night. I meditate within my heart. And my spirit makes diligent search. I'm reviewing what God has done. I'm praying. I'm reaching out to God. My soul will not be comforted. And then come these questions that we all ask. 
wait a minute, what, what if I have it wrong? What if he isn't good? And he doesn't care. I've wasted my life following you. Will the Lord cast off forever? Will he be favorable no more? Has his mercy ceased forever? Has his promise failed forevermore? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his tender mercies? Wait, this doesn't make sense. I'm praying. Could it be me? Has he stopped loving me? Is he no longer merciful? Did I have it? All wrong. And then comes his key insight. Instead of providing a petition for us to pray, he has a key insight. In verse 9a, I'm sorry, 10a, he says this. It was my sorrow. Here's the way it reads in the New King James. And I said, this is my anguish. This Verse 10 is introduced in the Hebrew, it's called avav adversative. And what avav adversative does in poetic language is that it says, everything is going this way, and now something happens, now it's going this way. This is an insight. He says, and then I said, this is my anguish. The Hebrew word there speaks of a state of being in grief. It has a verbal force, a sentence does, of cause and result. Think about what he's saying here. I'm thinking these things. God is not merciful. He is not good. My prayers aren't working. I'm trying all the spiritual tricks I know. And all it does is bring more doubt. And he says, it's my sorrow. If I don't do anything more today but change your mind about sorrow, I'll be praising God all the way back to Los Angeles. Think with me about what the Bible says about sorrow. Sorrow is not a sin. It is an emotion. It is a very tender emotion. Best experienced in the presence of God who you trust and in the presence of I believe, of a few trusted others. Sorrow is anguish due to loss. 
before we say that sorrow, because we've all had people go, shouldn't be sad. If you're a Christian, going to heaven. Okay, be joyful. A good Christian is a joy. I've actually heard sermons on people saying, sorrow is a sin because you're not believing that God is powerful enough. Well, tell that to Jesus at Lazarus' grave. There's nothing but pure sorrow. The humanity of Jesus breaks out in tears and in the original Greek screams against the pain of death because he sees what's happening in Martha and in Mary and he misses his friend and he weeps. Jesus himself said in Matthew 5, 4, Blessed are those who mourn for they will be future tense comforted. He doesn't say Stop mourning so that you can be joyful. Blessed are those who mourn. Because in the mourning, there can be comfort. It is always important for the real you to meet the real God. And if the real you is sorrowful, the heavenly Father is sorrowful with you. He's not going, come on, head, snap out of it. You're a preacher. I have a reputation here. In the upper room, Jesus told his disciples, truly, truly, I say to you, that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned to joy. He didn't say, you will be sorrowful, but stop that. Isaiah describes the coming Messiah as a man of sorrows and familiar with sufferings. Hebrews tells us that it was without sin. And then, during the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him. He was heard because of his reverent submission. Submission to what? The Father, trusting him with his tears. Sorrow is an emotion. A God-given response to suffering and loss. I'm not saying that it should rule us. I saying that it has to be given a place in our heart to run its course. In the presence of God, and if you're fortunate to have others who will surround you in sorrow, not telling you to get over it, but will be with you in your sorrow, you can move to health. If you don't give sorrow its place, if you suppress it, if you short-circuit it, the same thing that's going to happen to you that happened to me. I didn't give sorrow place in my life. I suppressed it. I suppressed it. Something was wrong, and I didn't want to admit it. So what happened was I, my flesh took control, and when my flesh turned control, sorrow suppressed will invariably turn to bitterness. Anger, 
rather than saying, Father, this is not the way it ought to be. We say, God, this is not the way it ought to be. And that's two different Christians. One is at a throne of grace, and the other is at a throne of control. I remember I keep a, me journals for every year of my life. I can hold them up to you. People at church, you have doors stick them. Okay, we know you journal. But I, uh, I went to see my mom and dad. This was years ago when I wrote Reborn to be Wild. And I went to see my mom and dad after the book. And, um, you know, I'd, I'd written my second book. I, I, I just know what I would do if one of my kids had, ri had written a book. What? <laughs> he wrote a book. I walked in the door. And Junior, one of the things about grieving is that we're able to grieve in such ways that we can handle what's wrong better. One of the things that we've always said is, you might want to do this this Christmas, is we just said, lower your expectations. <laughs> I want to walk in the door. I want to be loved. I want to be cherished. And I know it's not typically not going to happen. My parents are in heaven now, so I can talk about this. But my mom, I walked in the door, and I was going to spend the night with him because my dad was sick. And the first words out of my mom's mouth were, and I knew this wasn't going to go well, she said, I read your book. The second thing she said was, I wasn't in it. My mom wasn't, I mean, it was about the Jesus movement, and I was trying to talk about the Jesus, the Jesus movement, the Jesus movement. Revival, Jesus movement. And she said, besides that, you were talking about a life that I, you didn't live. She thought that with me telling the truth about my pre-Christian life in the 60s when I was totally out of control, an angry young man whose only goal was to live hard and die young, for some reason that made her seem like a bad parent, my rebellion. He said, I just don't know who you're talking about. And going to jail, and I said, Mom, do you remember coming and bailing me out? Well, but it devastated me. Devastated me. I went home. I wrote in my journal one morning, early one morning. My parents hate me. And I started weeping, and I didn't start weeping for an hour. And I realized it was my sorrow. I wanted to be, I was hardwired by God as a child to want to be cherished, to want to be loved. Now we get to the picture of Wednesday with my youngest grandson, Max, at Disneyland. When you live in Southern California and you have grandkids, that's what you do, you're a hero. So he's there with his two brothers, and somewhere we were riding on the 
Disneyland Railroad. One was brothers bopped him in the head. And he had a huge black eye. And he was just crying and crying and crying. I knew I was going to preach this sermon, and it made me feel like, hey, I get to live it right now. I just gathered, picked him up, and I gathered him in his arms, and I just held him. My brother shouldn't hit me, man. I'm so sorry, buddy. I'm so sorry. I'm so, so sorry. Yeah, it's not the way it's supposed to be. And then he hung around with me all day long, and that night we were taking the tram back to parking, and I put my arm around him, and I said, uh, did your eye hurt? And he looked at me and said, yeah, but it's okay. That's the way I have to view my Heavenly Father. It's okay because he's taking care of me. And then we come to these restoration meditations. Here's what he does. Such a contrast. Once he has expressed his sorrow... Now he begins talking about God. He says almost the same thing, but this time he's actually believing it. But I will remember the years on the right hand of the Most High. But I will remember the years on the right hand of the Most High. Now he says, God, Elyon, the ruler of the universe. I will remember the works of the Lord. You see, once you get past the sorrow, you start thinking about your life and you think, wow, God has really been looking over me. Surely I will remember your wonders of old. I will also meditate on all your work and talk of your deeds. Your way, O oh God, is in the sanctuaries, in your holiness. Who is so great? A God is our God. I don't know what it was going on in his life, but he grieved it. And now he's able to turn to God because it began with honesty. You are the God who does wonder. You, you have declared your strength among the peoples. You have with your arm redeemed your people, the sons of Jacob, Jacob and Joseph. The water saw you, they were afraid. He personifies the elements during the Exodus. The depths also trembled. The clouds poured out water, the skies sent out a sound. Your arrows also flashed about. The voice of your thunder was in the whirlwind. The lightning lit up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was in the sea, your path in the great waters. And your footsteps were not known. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Now he's process his sorrow. I am sad. It's not the way it's supposed to be. Um, when Christmas feels like a prison, Psalm 77 says, give sorrow room. Think about it. It's a very tender emotion. It's a healing emotion. And then he says, remember God's deeds and his deliverance. Sorrow suppressed leads to bitterness. Sorrow expressed will free you to turn to God. And here's what I also found. That sorrow, once I identified it, once I expressed it, something miraculous happened in my life. 
I began to look at my parents differently. The Holy Spirit, once I, got, once I wasn't just bitter and angry. Here's what I wrote a couple of days later in the journal. I thought, my parents were wounded. So before you think my parents were just horrible people, listen to this. My mom moved to California during the Great Depression. She was the grapes of wrath. She was an oaky. She was always a little dirty oaky girl that didn't have any money and didn't have any clothes. My grandmother was one of the most shaming people. She was a holy roller legalistic lady. Think about how that wounded my mom. I never found this out till after my mom died. My mom got married when she was 14 years old and my grandfather annulled the marriage. Think about that. She never graduated from high school. She was always telling me, you're just ashamed of us because we're Okies. It was coming from her own woundedness. And I never saw that until I grieved it. My dad, his father, was a womanizer who never provided for the family. And we found out after he died that he was a pedophile. My dad could barely spell. He was a very talented musician, but every time he tried to play his guitar, the entire family would tell me to be quiet. They didn't want to hear it. He fought in Italy. Who knows the scars? I'm firmly convinced that my parents, here I am reading Dostoevsky and Tolstoy and Shakespeare, they just didn't know what to do with me. I don't know what it is in your life, but here's what I know that God is saying to you. Got to be with him in the sorrow. He really cares. If it was unjust, if it was a sin sinned against you, the God of the universe knows you by name. And he knows more than anybody else it was not supposed to be this way. And he wants to join you in your sorrow and your grief. And as you grieve, and I would really recommend, I grieved this, I grieved all of this with a man named Kevin Butcher. I, I sat in his lap like he was some type of Santa Claus and cried and cried and cried. And that brought healing to my soul so that I could turn to God and remember that he was good and celebrate his deeds. And I could always remember the day of my deliverance. I, I got to do this. I need two more minutes. The day of my deliverance, I was this angry, angry young man. And a friend of mine asked me to Young Life Club. And I went. I didn't like it. It was too religious for me. And then one night I had a crisis. I went to my friend's house, Bakersfield, California. 
And he took me to my young life leader's house, sitting on a, a curb in Bakersfield, California. He spent four hours talking to me about the grace of God. Here he is. Keith Osborne led me to Christ. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.